another pot of coffee is brewing and my fifth cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine. As I record this, I am enjoying the smell of a brand new candle that is inspired, apparently, by Sherlock Holmes. And I'm hoping that the traffic outside my building doesn't pick up so that the sound isn't picked up on this microphone, which seems to be incredibly sensitive. Huge congratulations have to go to Game for a Movie on Twitter, who managed to guess the film that I'm going to be talking about this week from the random clues that I gave out. As part of the Chris Evans season, yep, I randomly decided to do this at some point last year, I'm going to be talking about 2011's rom-com What's My Number. Also this week I'm going to be talking about a brand new book that was only released on the 1st of March called The Wedding Game by Megan Quinn and I'm also going to be mentioning UK streaming services for the week and of course it wouldn't be a week in the coffee household if I didn't talk about what's been happening in my mental health world. As there was no weird dream at all this week, or if there was, I cannot remember it. I really do need to start writing in my dream diary again. I'm going to go straight into the film. So if you came for the dream, I'm really sorry. What's Your Number came out in September 2011, just three months after Chris Evans made his screen debut as the MCU's Captain America. It had a budget of $20.4 million, that probably went in casting, and only pulled in a rather disappointing $30 million at the box office. It's based on the book 20 Times Lady by Karen Bosnack, though having not read it, I don't know how accurate and loyal to the book it was. If you've read it, let me know. So, what's it all about? Ali Darling is somebody who desperately wants to be in love. I'm not sure if she, actually, I'm not sure if she wants to be in love so much as she wants to be with someone. At the moment that we meet her, she's in bed with her boyfriend, Rick, who is played by a rather scuffy looking Zachary Quinto. While he's in bed, she sneaks out, brushes her hair, puts on some makeup, and make sure she doesn't have morning breath before quietly climbing back into bed with him. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but do you have lashes that long? Seriously, I want to know what mascara she's using, because if she's wearing falsies, then they're really good to not end up climbing down her face like a spider while she sleeps. And if it's mascara, then I want to know what brand, because seriously... How long have they been together? That's another question that I can't help asking. When you hear her speaking with her friends after everything happens, it sounds as though they've been together for quite a while. So if she's been doing this every single morning in order that he thinks that she's beautiful every day, there's a problem. When they're both awake, he's in a desperate rush to leave. He is carrying his bicycle wheel and his cycle helmet out, well, to the door when she tells him that she's made breakfast. Clearly he's a vegetarian because she's talking about vegetarian sausage. He has this massive smile on his face because she's all domesticated and he sits down to eat and then she hits him with a whammy. She wants him to come with her to her sister's wedding, which if they've been dating for a while isn't an unreasonable request. He asks if her parents are going to be there. It's like, oh my God, really? at my sister's wedding. Are my parents going to be there? Well, yeah, I think so. He then says that going to a wedding with her is too serious. As he's leaving for the last time, because Ali's clearly had it and I don't blame her, he's got a walk over his shoulder and a toothbrush in his hand. And as he's at the door, he says she can call him anytime if she wants a hookup. So that is clearly where he thought their relationship was, even though they'd been together and sleeping together for a considerable period of time. Just as she's closing the door, the guy in 6A, which is across the hall, opens his door with a dish towel covering his bits. 
Thank you. He's gone out to get the newspaper. He's entertaining and the girl in his apartment clearly wants him to hurry up. He and Ali share a wave and he smirks at her as he goes back inside his apartment. Ali's running late. Shocker, she's just been dumped. (laughs) She had to clear up after making breakfast and she's now running late to work. As she gets there, all her colleagues are sitting outside their boss's office, staring into the office, watching their boss, played by Joel McHale, who is talking to another head of department, though it seems he's paying more attention to his fingers. The rest of the department are trying to figure out if he's sniffing his fingers or just trying to look interested. Before Ali has a chance to sit down, she's called into her boss, whose name's Roger's, office and you just know that it's not going to go well she's told to sit down but then told not to take her coat off she's been fired but she's the only one so it makes you wonder if it's because she's done something wrong or it's simply that they have sensed she's not happy in her role on the subway on the way home carrying a massive great big box filled with a plant and some papers and everything else that you gather up as you're working in an office. She pulls a magazine out of her meagre desk collection and starts to read. And it's there that she sees the article, What's Your Number? How many men have you slept with? Too many? Too few? What your number says about you? And it gets her thinking. The article states that the average number of partners a woman in the US has in a lifetime is 10.5, a number that she actually thinks is rather low. Thinking about it and getting a bit nervous, it seems, she gets a notebook out of her box, gets out a pen and starts to make a list of all the guys she slept with. And this notebook plays a role through a large part of the early part of the film because she keeps on remembering men as she sees her sister, as she's getting ready for her sister's engagement announcement party and it's getting longer oh just so you know there is one thing in a lot of chris evans films in fact i can think of three without any hesitation that elevators play a part in the nanny the losers and of course captain america the winter soldier however there's going to be no chance for an elevator scene in this film because it's always out of order lucky for ali who's got a walk up to the sixth floor carrying a really heavy box. After the day from hell, being dumped and getting fired, Ali has to go to a family do to celebrate her sister Daisy getting married. Just what everyone needs after a really bad day. An evening with a demanding and interfering mother. In this case, her mother Ava is played by Gwyneth Paltrow's mum, Blythe Danner. While Ali is talking to her sister, we find out that her parents are divorced and that things are so acrimonious between them, he's not even been invited to Daisy's wedding because she doesn't want to rock the boat with their mother. While talking with her sister Daisy, Ali realises her current number of men is 19, and it's possible that the list isn't even finished yet. She's still thinking. While she's working out her number, she gets just a tiny bit drunker than she should when she's expected to make a toast. Who would make a toast? Well, actually... Weddings seem to be the place where people do make toasts when they're incredibly drunk, but Ali has not got the greatest control over what she says when she's sober, so saying things when she's drunk is probably not the best idea. And in this case, her wedding speech actually goes viral on YouTube because she is not at all discreet and she is maybe a little bit too honest. After the more sedate event at her mother's house, The girls go to a club where they play a game at Ali's suggestion. But it's more so she can find out how many people her friends have slept with because she doesn't want to be the only one who has a high number. Unfortunately, this is not going to go the way anybody wants it to because you just know things don't. She goes to the bar to get paper and pens and another round of drinks and it's there she bumps into Roger, her now ex-boss. He doesn't seem to realise that the animosity he's now getting from her is because nobody accepts being fired really well. He tells her that you didn't like marketing, so that's why I did it. Seriously, if I was judged by my boss, not now, but in most jobs, did I like the company I was working for, or did I like all the people I worked with, or did I like every element of the job, I wouldn't have a job because I don't know 
anybody who can honestly say I like my job 100% of the time. So she got essentially let go from her job because I didn't think you really liked marketing anyway. It's like, no, but I do like paying my rent. The game, as predicted, is backfiring. The girls that she's with all have numbers in single digits. And when they finally get to a double digit number, they slut shame her. When it's Ali's turn to pick a number and she gets her own, she rips the paper in half and says, oh look, it's another nine. But that doesn't hold for long when the other half of the piece of paper is found on the floor. And then they read the other part of the article that Ali got the idea of the number from. It seems it's worse than it was initially because now Ali not only has to worry that her number is high or is perceived as high, but according to research, 96% of those women who were asked who had numbers of 20 or more never found a husband. As far as Ali is concerned, she's at 19, so she has one more chance. The next guy has to be the one or she's doomed. At least she thinks so and the people she's with seem to be reinforcing this opinion. I don't know if I'd consider them friends if they are that judgmental of her life choices. Of course, this is bound to go wrong. The moment she says she's taking control, you just know there's gonna be a massive screw up pretty quickly. And of course, there is. She gets incredibly drunk at the club and then ends up taking her boss, Roger, the finger sniffer, home with her. The next morning, she calls her sister, Daisy, in a panic and then says the words you know will come back to bite her. I don't know why I never considered him before, she says as she looks at him. And then he sticks his hand down his pants and sniffs his fingers, exactly how he was doing in the office the previous day. Yeah, that's the reason why she never considered him. She's trying desperately to get Roger to leave, not making him coffee, telling him that she doesn't get the newspaper, when 6A knocks on the door and hands her a newspaper. He's apparently locked himself out of his apartment and wants to use Ali's phone to call someone with a spare. He's very good though at reading the room and can tell that Ali desperately wants Roger to leave. So he comes to her rescue when Roger asks her out to dinner that evening, telling him that there's a tenants meeting they both have to attend. Just as she's finally managed to get Roger out of the apartment, the door to 6A opens and a pretty girl leaves, closing the door behind her. Ali reads the situation just as well as Colin, that is 6A, did slightly earlier. And she knows that he was trying to avoid the girl that was in his apartment. It seems he does this kind of thing a lot, but now Ali's apartment offers the perfect refuge. Well, for a time, because Ali isn't hugely impressed. Sisterhood, solidarity and all that comes into play but it doesn't last too long. He knows that the girl in his apartment could have easily let him in, but he wanted to get out of the situation he found himself in without a confrontation or any hurt feelings. Later that day, Ali is with Daisy at a cake tasting. She's stuffing her face with what looks like a very dull, plain vanilla sponge with vanilla frosting. Really? No red velvet or coconut cream or chocolate or anything else? When one of her exes comes in, disgusting Donald, who is played by Chris Pratt, her husband at the time. They were together from 2008 to 2019, or at least they were married until then. He's there with his fiancée, a rocket scientist called Kara, and of course there's no way that Ali can allow him to believe that she's single, so she tells him that she's also getting married to a scientist who is currently at the North Pole, and he is so handsome that they would never believe he was a scientist or intelligent. It's at this point that Ali realises her exes could have got better with time and there must be one on her list of 19, well, 20 of you include Roger from the night before, but let's disregard him, that isn't wrong for her now. Thus starts her search, but A, she has no idea where to begin and B, she's very, clearly very not good at it. There are a few things that you should never search for on Google and Ali discovers that big balls, small penis is definitely one of them. As she's trying to find some of her exes online, that is one of the criteria she uses in a search. The next morning, she wakes up a little red wine hungover, keyboard imprints on her cheek, and a massive pair of balls and a tiny animated penis on her screen, and they're dancing. 6A Colin, 
I'm going to just call him Colin from now on because 6A is, the fact that he lives in 6A is kind of irrelevant from this point onwards, has a thing about clothes, quite clearly, because the next time Ali sees him, he's again covering himself with a dishcloth and collecting his newspaper. She opens her door in a rush, says hi, and then asks him outright if she can pay him to find some people for her. He stands and listens while eating an apple. Oh my god. Seriously, how can one man eating an apple be sexy? But this is Chris Evans, wearing no clothing. And when he uses the cloth he was using to cover himself to wipe his face, yeah, just a tiny bit gross, but bugger the blinking balustrade that's in front of everything. I am not going to be making Instagram accident jokes here. You just can't help but admire him. A little bit. He refuses to help her, saying that he has to protect the men from her, as he knows they must have been the one to end it. He tells her she's the sort of girl who would try and make a bad thing work. And he's not wrong. To be fair, proof of that was quite obvious right at the beginning when she's talking with Rick, the vegetarian cyclist who wants just to hook up despite hooking up with her every night. She's disappointed that he says no, but then she gets inspiration. She'll totally help him to hide from his one night stands if he helps her to track down her exit. She has the guys listed in order of priority and right at the top of that list is Jake Adams. He's one of Boston's elite. He's from a very wealthy family and he's her white whale. He's the second guy she slept with, though he doesn't know that he's the second guy, but we'll get to that later. The third guy on her list was apparently the best sex she ever had, though Colin counters with the information that she's never had sex with him, so how does she know? She's at a dress fitting for the wedding when Colin lets her know that he's found Dave Hansen, an ex who's a goth magician. However, when she heads over to the club where Dave works, she immediately writes him off because he hasn't changed. He's still doing exactly the same tricks. He's not moved on at all. And what she's looking for is someone who has changed in the time that they've been apart. Her and Dave have been separated for nine years and in that nine years, he hasn't grown as a person. Well, she can't tell that. Really, she's judging quite harshly because how can she tell if he's changed if she doesn't speak to him? But seeing him perform the same magic trick he used on her when they first started dating, she just has this feeling and doesn't want to know. On the way home from the club, Colin is asking her about why she wants to do this and she makes the mistake of telling him that she doesn't want to raise her number. And he finds it amusing because he's sure that has to be her reason for not sleeping with him. But then she says to him that men don't really get it, that men want this perfect image of a woman. They have this perfect image of a woman in their heads. And a woman who has slept with multiple partners doesn't seem to meet that. I don't know if she's right anymore. Colin doesn't seem to judge things that way. However, we do come across that again later on in the film. I'm not sure how long has passed during this film because the first thing we have is the wedding announcement party. Then we have all of the processes, the invitations, the flowers, the dress, the cake tasting, everything that goes into preparing a wedding. So it could be months. But Ali and Colin have developed a really good friendship based on dependency. He depends on her good grace for an apartment to hide out in and she depends on his to find her ex-boyfriends, at least the single ones. They even seem to know each other's favourite foods. They're developing a pseudo-relationship based on this dependency. Colin has come through again. He's found another of her exes. Simon Forrester is British. He's played by Martin Freeman, who is Ross. And of course, we all know that he plays Dr. Watson in the BBC's version of Sherlock. He's getting a divorce and selling his house. So Ali and Colin go to the open house. However, they end up in the wrong house. Yes, I've used house a lot there. It's actually disgusting Donald's house with his fiancée, Cara. And this gets disgusting Donald. 
I'm so sorry. He's not disgusting. He was disgusting when they were dating, or at least she thought so, which is why it's confusing that she stayed with him for so long. But anyway, it's Donald's house with his fiancée, Cara. Their photos are all over the place. And when he arrives in the house, Colin's upstairs using their bathroom. She's looking around and he is horrified because it's like she's suddenly become his stalker again. Or not again. It's like she's suddenly become his stalker. I'm so sorry. She wasn't his stalker before. Cue a really awkward scene before she ends up leaving the house with Colin. And then they bump into Simon. This is actually probably the scene that people remember from the promos. The awful fake accent that Anna Faris, as Ali, puts on as soon as she sees Simon. And Colin's shocked expression when he hears it for the first time. Unfortunately, the date doesn't go well because when you pretend to be something you're not and you get very drunk, it can quickly go wrong. And her accent starts to screw up royally. First she becomes Eliza Doolittle and then she turns into Borat. Cue Jerry Perry, a puppeteer played by Andy Samberg. He had a crush on Daisy but ended up sleeping with Ali, kind of by default. Unfortunately, his obsession with Daisy never vanished. And the fact that he's a puppeteer kind of says it all. Ali isn't interested, and to be honest, he probably isn't either, because he's only really interested in Daisy. Interspersed with all of Ali's searching is the continued preparation for Daisy's wedding. So there's this contrast of a girl who has found exactly what she's looking for, and a girl who is trying to find the person to get all of that with. She meets Daisy for lunch and is prepared to leave when she discovers that not only is their mother meeting them, but she has been asked along to act as a buffer because they need to tell her that Daisy invited her father to the wedding. In order to sort of create some kind of expectation, Daisy tells their mum that Rick and Ali broke up and her mum is, again, disappointed because that's yet another one that Ali hasn't made a successful relationship with. Ali has, by this point, decided that time is running out. I'm not sure what schedule she's on, because we never really find out how old she is. Is the deadline her sister's wedding? She needs to find the perfect date for her sister's wedding. And that is what she's doing all this for? You never really know. She decides that she's going to go to Miami to meet another of her exes, Dr. Barry Ingold. He's now a gynaecologist, so she's travelling all the way to Miami for a pap smear. Oh, I should say that this is based in Boston, which is Chris Evans' hometown, but he doesn't have his Boston accent. When she arrives, she has a really bad, very orange fake tan, and he doesn't recognise her. They went to college together, they had a relationship, though it's not clear how long it was, and he doesn't recognise her until he looks under the hood. Arriving back from Miami, she is about to give up because the last three have been absolute disasters and she still hasn't had word of Jake. And then Colin says that he's found Tom Piper in DC. Of course, after this, we get an interesting little scene that has nothing to do with any of the guys. Her sister has a problem with pooping using public bathrooms she's not familiar with. So she calls up and says she needs to use Ali's bathroom. And it's there where she meets Colin, who is sitting on Ali's sofa, playing his guitar and wearing nothing but his underwear. I don't think I'd mind if I walked into my living room to find Chris Evans in nothing but his underwear on my sofa. No, I, I wouldn't. The following day, she has an interview and she's also planning on heading down to DC to meet with Tom Piper, or at least bump into Tom Piper because he's not aware of it. She's bought a rather dull grey pantsuit for both occasions, which looks really sensible, very boring, but the perfect clothing for a job interview. When she arrives in DC, Ali has a cramp because obviously sitting down for that length of time on the train was a bit uncomfortable. And she calls Colin and he tells her to punch her leg. So she does as she's walking out of the train station. He's at her apartment, soaking in her bath with her bubble bath, listening to her playlists. He tells her that 
he spoke with Tom's assistant and found out that he's going to be working in the library all day. So Ali heads to the library and stages an accidental meeting, which ends up being a little bit more uncomfortable for me than I thought it would be. Tom Piper is played by an almost unrecognisable Anthony Mackie. That evening, Tom takes her to a senatorial event. There are loads of people there he wants to impress. He's dressed up to the nines and he sends Ali a stunning red dress, which is probably two sizes too small. He is only too happy to get back together with Ali. In fact, he proposes marriage to her pretty quickly when it's clear that with Ali by his side, he gets attention. She's like, well, we haven't even kissed yet. And he says, oh, I'm gay. I'm super gay. You'd be my beard. And then Tom says the one thing guaranteed to make a woman's self-esteem disappear down the toilet. I wouldn't have known I was gay if I hadn't dated you. I think I'd have punched him at that point because that is as insulting as being told, I really like you, but I think of you more as a sister. And that one I'm saying from experience. Ali gets home and she is really despondent. But Colin is there to make her feel better. I'm sure he could think of many other ways to do so. He ends up singing and playing a rocked out version of Three Times a Lady by the Commodores. Ali has come to the realisation that she is going to have to go to her sister's wedding alone. And then the commitment phobe, Colin, offers to go with her. Sensing that she needs a bit of a break, he takes her out for some fresh air and they go to Madison Square Garden. I've never been. I have been to Boston, but I have never been to Madison Square Garden. And they play a game of strip horse. Unfortunately, or fortunately for the female viewers and male viewers, Colin sucks at basketball. And before long, he is down to just his boxers. However, of course, we know that Ali is wearing a red dress that is now being held together with safety pins. I had to think for a second because it was way too small. And it doesn't take more than one bad shot for Ali to be down to her bra and knick. And then they play one-on-one -on -one because once they've reached their underwear, they could both lose super quickly, though I don't get the feeling Colin would mind so much if he lost. But not so much because he's an exhibitionist, but because he's incredibly confident in his own skin. And then one of the security guards show up. He arrives on the court and all that's left there as evidence that anyone has been on the court at all is Ali's dress over one of the baskets. And of course, what other way to end the evening but to jump in Boston Harbour completely naked? When they get back to Ali's apartment, things get intense quickly. Colin is desperately attracted to her and she is attracted to him too, understandably. Actually, no, not understandably because not everybody finds everyone the same attractive. But watching this, I think you're meant to see him as attractive. They kiss and undress on Ali's bed and then she calls a stop. She has to slow things down because she cannot go over her number. The next morning... They're still asleep together, though they haven't done anything, when she has to go and do another wedding thing with her sister. She needs to help Daisy pick out place cards for the tables. While she's picking out the place cards, she falls to peer pressure. Her sisters and fellow bridesmaids tell her that Colin is not the guy she should end up with. He's the guy who's a liar that you date before the guy you end up with. And the thing that really got me here was... A, who the hell are they to judge? And B, only Daisy has met him, so how can they judge him on anything other than what Ali has said? And she hasn't been at all negative or judgmental about him, at least not since the beginning. That evening, she's working on her sculptures when a message comes through on Colin's phone. It turns out he has got Jake's number, but he never bothered to tell her. Of course, he's under the impression that they're now together, so why would he tell her? Because she should have stopped looking now. She's found him, why does she need anybody else? Her friends are not that great at being friends, but Colin calls her on her shit, telling her that she doesn't know what she wants or who she is, 
that she's too busy trying to be what everyone else wants her to be. And he's not wrong. However, this argument sets them on a path to not even talking to each other. She finally has Jake's number and she doesn't waste time in calling him. Which makes me wonder, really, is it because this is what everybody else wants for her rather than what she wants for herself? The first date is a bit of a disaster, thanks to hair extensions. Just as Jake shows up, her hair extension ponytail catches fire, courtesy of the flambe that's going on at the table behind them. The next day, Ali is dragged to yet another meal with Daisy, and she really should know better by now, because as where Daisy is concerned, there's always going to be something awkward when it's just them together. There are two extra seats at lunch, one's for her father and one is for his second wife. Daisy wants Ali there to take the pressure off when she tells him that he's no longer invited to the wedding. However, it doesn't quite go to plan. They now have to tell their mother, Ava, that her dad is coming to the wedding and they still want her to go because the moment they told Ava that they'd invited their dad to the wedding, which she had a right to go to, she started to tell them she wasn't going to go to the wedding at all if he was invited. When they get to her mother's house, she's furious. However, it's not about their father. It's about the fact that Ali didn't tell anyone she was dating Jake Adams. But it's already hit the social pages, so it was a bit late and she really should have opened her mouth a bit beforehand. We then get the obligatory montage that you get in every rom-com, of Ali and Jake, and it's accompanied by Ben Taylor's Wicked Way. And if you don't know the song, look it up. It's quite mellow. It's one of those really, really soothing tones that you can listen to while meditating. All the while that things are going incredibly well for Ali and Jake, Colin is missing her. On the day of the wedding, Ali and Colin bump into each other on the stairwell. He's going to a wedding where he's performing and Obviously, she's going to be the maid of honour at her sister's wedding. She tore his heart out and is trying to act as though it didn't happen, being all jokey and friendly and giving him advice about not drinking too much champagne. It's a bit hollow because she jumped all over his heart and he was being honest with her. He was being open with her, telling her that he was going to change for her. And all she's interested in is the fact that he didn't give her Jake's phone number. As she's listening to her sister's vows, things are being put into perspective. Jake is there and everyone is telling her that he is the perfect man for her. But is that truly the case? Or is she still trying to just make everybody happy? When they're dancing together, her dad asks her if she is happy and she starts to doubt it. He points out that her mum thinks that being happy is being exactly like her when she's in reality far more like him. Then three times a lady starts playing and Jake asks her to dance. He then starts to talk about how they slept together and he was her first and she knows that she needs to tell him the truth. She tells him how many men she's been with and he thinks that she's joking until he doesn't. He then asks her to travel with him and tells her that of course she can come because he's the only thing keeping her in Boston because she doesn't have a job and now that he's leaving there is no reason for her to stay either. Luckily she gets saved from making any decision that at that point because she has to go up on the stage and make her sister of the bride speech. We don't have those here or do we? I'm lucky I didn't have to make one of those at my sister's wedding. And I think that that was the last wedding I went to. That was in 2000. Well, I haven't been to a wedding for over 20 years. Not a bad thing. However, this time her speech is from the heart rather than from the bottle of a champagne bottle. After the speech, while the guests are partying, Ali takes Jake off to somewhere a little bit more private and tells him that she isn't going to be traveling with him, that she isn't in love with him, He's not perfect for her and she isn't perfect for him either. He is disappointed, angry, frustrated, and he leaves the wedding immediately. Unfortunately, her mum is not so easy to convince that it's the right thing. Not that Jake took it well, but her mum takes it just as badly and it's not her life. She tells her that she doesn't want to be like her and that her mum doesn't have to understand her, she just has to love her. Sensing that things are going into a sort of 
a bit of a downward spiral. Daisy steps in and tells everyone that her dress didn't fit that morning. She was having a fit about it at the time because she's four months pregnant. And that is enough of a distraction that it gives Ali enough time to head off and go and find Colin. She's driving a little Honda around everywhere, but halfway through her search, she ends up stealing a delivery bike because her car gets stuck in a traffic jam outside a Greek wedding. And it is very similar in many ways to the Greek wedding in my big fat Greek wedding in that it takes over everything. When she finally finds the right wedding, because there are a lot taking place on this particular day, there are security guards everywhere. And in order to get to Colin, she has to climb a fence in a dress that was definitely not designed for anything more than walking up an aisle. Finally, at the wedding, she gets up on stage with a tambourine, accompanies, <laughs> accompanies the band as they're performing one of their original songs. She does not know the words, obviously, and she has no idea what she's doing when she pushes one of the guitarists away from the microphone and starts to sing badly. Colin sees her and tells her, no, not now, this isn't the right time. But then she gets control of the microphone and tells them that the band are taking a break and it's time for the speeches. Colin's tired and you can tell that he's had enough. He doesn't want to hear it. This is all on her terms. And then she tells him that she's the happiest she can be when she's herself. And she's only herself when she's with him. The good thing is that she acknowledges because she was afraid he was an asshole she ended up becoming the asshole. As the wedding guests cheer in the background, the music swells and Colin and Ali are kissing, her in her ripped and torn bridesmaid's gown that is somewhat reminiscent of the dress Hermione wore to prom and Colin in his little bit ruffled black suit. We zoom to later, they're making out in Ali's apartment with Mexican wrestling on in the background when her phone rings. The machine picks up and it's the guy she slept with, Jay, when she was on college spring break, when she was pretending to be Kelly with an eye. Through some long convoluted speech, it turns out that they never slept together. She threw up in his luggage and then passed out. So Colin is her magic number 20. I enjoy this film. I don't know if I'd enjoy it so much if Chris Evans wasn't in it. There are certain elements of it that I find a little bit problematic, mostly the the bits about how a woman has to have a specific number. There's never any judgment when a man has that number, but if a woman has that number, she is judged. And even in the scene where they're talking about numbers in the nightclub, they've all got numbers that are like six or four or nine. And then one of the girls has the number 13 and she's automatically shamed for having that number by her friends. But she's not ashamed of the number herself. She's confident in the fact, well, I was having fun. Why can't I have that number? What's wrong with it? I'm proud of my body. Ali is made to feel ashamed of who she is and ashamed of her choices. She's not feeling her own shame. She shouldn't. She's feeling the shame that the people around her are making her feel. And I think that that is, a lot of that pressure comes from her mother who is socially climbing. She wants both of her daughters married, but she wants them both married to men she considers the right ones. And I don't know, this is because she believes she married the wrong one in marrying her daughter's father. Who knows? But that is the biggest issue I had with this. It was the fact that women were being looked at and judged for the number of men they slept with. And then you get that article saying that 96% of women who slept with more than 20 men aren't going to get married. And one of the girls who is a psychologist is then telling everybody that you're 45 and alone and... And I'm thinking, hang on a second, there's no guarantee if you sleep with only a few men that you're going to find the right one. So if you're having fun and you don't have any issue, you've got confidence in what you're doing, why allow anybody to belittle you? And in a way, she does allow people to belittle her choices. She allows herself to be 
molded into thinking a certain way. Look at the scene when she is with her sister choosing the invitations or the table decorations and all of those girls gang up on her and say, oh no, he's not the right guy for you. How do they know? How do they know that he is not the man that is absolutely perfectly intended for her? If you like a rom-com that has a little bit more than, well actually, more than a little bit of innuendo in it, then definitely watch this. It's currently streaming on Amazon. At some point, given the fact it's from 20th Century Fox, it will probably appear on Disney Plus Star at some point, but it has been on Prime now for a good 18 months. That said, I do have it on DVD, so if it doesn't appear on Star once it's left Amazon, I've got no issue because I have a nice collection of Chris Evans films. So, now we've talked about everything that I, well, we never talk about everything that I've watched in a week, but now we've talked about the film I've watched this week. Let's go over to the news desk and find out what's going to be on streaming services in the UK between the 5th and the 11th of March. We're already in March. Where the heck is this year going? Don't forget, however, that it is Mother's Day on Sunday the 14th of March. So if you're still thinking about a gift to get her, look on Etsy. I got some really good candles over there and they smell amazing. So let's get on with streaming services. On Netflix this week, we've as we've already passed the first of the month, it's a tiny bit quieter. There is actually still a fair amount of stuff on there though. On the 5th of March, we have season one of kids animation series, City of Ghosts. We also have Nivanka, Breaking the Silence, which is the true story of Nivanka Fernandez and her experience after reporting sexual harassment in 2000. She was a counselor, I believe. We also have the Best of Enemies, which is the story of civil rights activist Anne Atwater versus the Ku Klux Klan's C.P. Ellis. This isn't a story I'm familiar with, however, it seems like something most people should watch. We then skip four days. On the 9th of March, we have a show called Starbeam, yet another children's animation series. On the 10th of March, we have Last Chance You Basketball, which is a docu-series about the East LA College Huskies basketball team. There's also the start of a brand new reality show called Marriage or Mortgage. I think I'd pick Mortgage because a marriage is not just the day you get married and it's only about photos. We also have the film She Dies Tomorrow. Then on the 11th of March, we have a film called the Block Island Sound. Amazon is doing its usual thing and being relatively quiet. However, I have managed to find a tiny bit more information this month. We all know that on the 5th of March, Coming to America, the sequel to Coming to America, is going to be airing on Prime. Now, I've already said this before, I'm not going to watch. It seems like a bit more of a vanity project this time round. And being honest, I liked Eddie Murphy in the 80s, but I preferred The Golden Child and Beverly Hills Cop to Coming to America, which I found to be kind of like a series of SNL skits that I found uncomfortable. We also have Inception, Hall Pass and The Mule coming on the 5th. So there's a few new films. However, Inception didn't long ago leave Prime. They seem to go through cycles where they'll just re-add films that were off for about a month. On the 8th of March, we have Magic Mike XXL. Magic Mike was added, I believe, at some point during February. So adding the sequel seems a bit lot seems logical. And then on the 10th of March, we have Edge of Tomorrow. Over on Disney, it's actually a little bit more busy. Now that we've got Disney Plus Star, they are beginning to add more content, kind of like Netflix. So soon enough, you're going to find that the Netflix and the Disney Plus lists get rather equal. On the 5th of March, they are premiering Raya and the Last Dragon. This is going to be released at the same time on Disney Plus Star 
as it's released in the cinemas. Of course, in the UK, cinemas are currently closed and I believe they are set to open around the 10th of April, maybe the 12th. However, that means that most people, if they want to see this film, are either going to have to pay, I think it's £19, or they're going to have to wait until the cinemas reopen. So it's down to whether it's worthwhile or not. I might invest, but it depends on what they decide about the Black Widow. I'm not going to invest in stacks and stacks of films. Not only that, I'm using my mum's Disney Plus account. I don't think she wants extra charges on her card. Also on the 5th, we have the addition of Dodgeball, a true underdog story. Dollface season one starts airing and that's going to be airing every single Friday. The Cleveland show, The Catch, Mickey Mouse mixed up. Car SOS season seven is going to be added to Discovery. Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella starring Brandy and Wynne Houston. And the final episode of WandaVision. This means that on Saturday the 6th, I am going to be completely uncontactable because I am going to be watching the entirety of the series from episode one to episode nine because I haven't seen any of it. So that's it. That is the streaming services for this coming week. Whether you are a fan of sci-fi or you want to watch docudrama, you'll find something in that list. Looking for something else to listen to once you've finished listening to this episode? Join Bryce, Jim and Murray from Film Rage as they talk new releases, current releases and old releases. It's all about film, really. It's time to feel the rage. Join us on Film Rage where we talk movies, current releases, coming attractions, streaming and classic films as well. Directors and actors beware as you cannot hide from the rage. My name is Bryce and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hey, hey. And Murray. Yo. Why is it you always talk all the time? I can't understand I why. Sweet, sweet voice. This is the merman, the voice of reason. These two can't agree on anything most of the time. Some movies are mondo, some are just Every week something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and feel. And now you know all about that one. Head over there after you've finished listening to me. So now we've got to the book. I was thinking about what I do. And I did consider the book I am still reading, but I didn't want to rush it. And that is Donut by Tom Holt. However, instead, I realised that I had a book on my Kindle that was a really new release. It actually didn't come out until the 1st of March this year. However, courtesy of Prime Early Reads, I managed to get hold of it last month. I read it relatively quickly because it was an easy read. And the book I'm talking about is Megan Quinn's The Wedding Game. So, what is The Wedding Game about? Luna Rossi is a veritable crafting genius. She can bedazzle and bead so hard her Etsy site is one of the hottest in the world. So it's only natural that Luna would convince her brother and his husband-to-be to compete on The Wedding Game, a do-it-yourself TV show, for the title of top DIY wedding expert. As a jaded divorce lawyer, Alec Baxter scoffs at weddings and romance, but when his recently engaged brother begs him to participate in the wedding game, Alec begrudgingly picks up a glue gun and prepares for some family bonding. Both fierce competitors, Alec and Luna, clash on national TV as harsh words and glitter fly with abandon. But as they bicker over colour swatches and mood boards, they find themselves fighting something else, their growing mutual attraction. While Luna is torn between family loyalty and her own feelings, Alec wonders if he might have been wrong about love and marriage all along. Okay, so I've never read a book by Megan Quinn before, but reading through the reviews that I found on Goodreads and on Amazon, this is not the same kind of book that she normally produces. In fact, according to one review, this book was inherently her yet so different at the same time. I have to be honest, I picked this up because the cover, which was bright blue and pink and quite girly, appealed to me. I thought, ooh, this is chiclet, and I didn't want to read something that was too complicated, too in-depth, too deep. And I was right, this wasn't any of those things. 
However, it wasn't chiclet as I am used to it. In fact, I think it probably would be more closely considered a contemporary romance. But at the same time, this was the sort of book that read a little bit like fan fiction. Luna Rossi is described as beautiful, charming, skilled, good at everything that she tries her hand at. And Alec Baxter is actually described as a Chris Evans lookalike. If the first time I read that particular line, and it's something that comes up a lot, he uses this once he realises that this is what Luna thinks of him, he uses that to his advantage. He's a Chris Evans lookalike who is intelligent, charming, but as far as she's concerned, he's found wanting. The first time they meet, he thinks that she's an assistant on the show and asks her, well actually doesn't ask her, demands a coffee from her, which she spits in. Now, if they're all meant to be mature and they're, well, they are all meant to be mature, spitting in someone's coffee is not the immediate response I would have to someone demanding a coffee. I'd just say no and explain why I was saying no. She's not a member of the crew. She is a competitor on the show just as he is. Some of these characters were so over the top. I loved her brother Cohen and his partner Declan. They were understated, quiet, not at all the traditional cliche you expect to find in a book. And it sounds awful, but you do expect to find a few cliches when you're reading a novel. Whether it's chick lit, science fiction or fantasy, there are always going to be a few that you think, oh, these characters in every single book I've ever read. Unfortunately, that particular role went to Alex's younger brother, Thad, who was the biggest cliche out there. He was over the top. You expected him to be a total diva. Well, you didn't expect him to be a total diva. He's about to become a father. He's getting married. He's in love with his partner. And he shrieks and squeals and cries and is over the top constantly. He overreacts to everything. And at a certain point in the book, you expect, you you want someone to say, will you just stop it? This is pathetic. He cries at the drop of a hat. He's massively over-emotional. And I couldn't feel anything for him but annoyance. Alec, I, I loved as a character in many ways because he wasn't what you expected. He's a hard-nosed divorce lawyer but he isn't really hard-nosed and you find out as you read through the book you find that there is something in him that has made him the way he is. He hasn't got a very good relationship with his mum, in fact he's got a non-existent relationship with his mother who in many ways like Ali and Ava in What's Your Number is because of a disastrous marriage experience. Alec and Thad's mum was cheated on by their father who ran off with another woman and their divorce was incredibly acrimonious. Alec reminds their mother of her ex-husband and therefore every single fault that she saw in her ex-husband she now sees in Alec and he has a lot of growing to do in order to get over this. It's something he has buried for a very long time but Thad seems to expect him to... It's quite difficult. Essentially, Thad asks Alec to be part of their team on this show called The Wedding Game. The prizes are a $10,000 wedding, but the biggest prize is a penthouse in Manhattan completely paid for. Thad's girlfriend, fiance, wife-to-be, Naomi, is pregnant. They need a bigger property to live in, they need more space and he loves the limelight. The problem is they need a member of their family on their team with them. Naomi's parents live too far away and there's no way they could ask Thad's mum or their dad. So he asks his brother who has been there for him for everything but they've kind of grown apart as Alex's career has grown and he's distanced himself somewhat and not unfairly either 
He spent his entire youth protecting Thad from their parents and the disaster that was their parents' marriage and subsequent divorce. And then he went to college and they kind of grew apart as their lives changed, which happens. I don't speak to my sister every single week. In fact, I didn't even speak to my sister when I found out what her son wanted for his birthday. I sent her a text message and then waited two days for a response because we don't have anything in common anymore apart from the fact that we're related. And just because you're related to someone does not mean you have to get on with them all the time. You have to live in each other's pockets or anything else. It would drive me insane. Anyway, Thad asks Alec and Alec is a little bit difficult to persuade, but he eventually agrees. However, he's still reluctant because this is not his thing. He's not a crafty person. He's not interested in marriage. He's seen how bad they can be. Not that he's going to tell his brother that marriage is a disaster and a waste of time, but he is going to try. The other end of the scale, we have Luna Rossi, who is a crafting queen. She sells her goods on Etsy, has a YouTube channel and does all these beautiful things with calligraphy and everything else. And she has to persuade her brother and his fiance that's Cohen and Declan, to participate. In fact, when they are reluctant, she actually goes behind their back and submits an application on their behalf. And then she has to tell them that they've been accepted. So we have two different ends of the spectrum. We've got the girl who lies to her family to get them to participate. And then we have the guy who almost emotionally blackmails his brother into doing so. I'm struggling to think of anything in here that was different you can set you can see from a mile off that the relationship is going to build he's sexy he finds her attractive even though there is a great deal of animosity between them because of the way that they first met then luna starts to help alec and he opens up to her and confesses that there is a problem in their relationship he really needs to build this trust between him and thad and he wants to work at it and then he tells her of the problems that they have with their mother and she is honest with him however neither of them are honest with their families and that's the whole point things start to fall apart incredibly quickly when their secret is discovered because cohen is now angry at luna because she didn't tell him that she was involved with somebody and Thad sees Alec as having betrayed the family by liaising with the competition. There's a lot of sex in this book too. And then it sounds, oh God, that sounded like, oh my God, there's a lot of sex in this book. That wasn't my, oh my God, there's so much sex, it's horrifying. Because I read a load of, you've probably heard me talk about the Arjuno series. And I've read Cameron Moaning and her Highlander series. There's loads of sex in those as well, but if you are familiar with the chiclet genre, there isn't very much sex in it. It's kind of like a fade to black. It is a rom-com thing, a PG-13 or a 12A rom-com thing. There is no sex. There's kissing and it fades to black because that, I'd say that's the point. It's supposed to be focusing on the romance. This focuses on the romance to a point, but there is also quite a lot of smut involved in that romance. So it's more on the reality side of Chiclet. But then there are certain things that are said, talk about nipple play and things, and you're thinking, uh, okay. And it felt a little bit out of place. The book's not a long one at, by any stretch of the imagination. As I said, I started reading it on Sunday and finished it on Monday. It's not a long book by any stretch, but there are certain scenes in it that I didn't feel were necessary to make the story work it could have been a completely pg book and still worked the same way i'm gonna try another book by megan quinn at some point i will take recommendations if anybody's read megan quinn let me know i will be taking recommendations because i'd like to read something else by her purely to see if it's different when it's not trying to be something else if that makes sense this felt like it was trying to be a chiclet with a bit of edge. It was trying to be a Jill Mansell or a Paige Toon with edge and it didn't quite gel for me. However, she's a good writer. Her writing style is fantastic. I've got no fault with that at all. I just don't think this was the right book for me to start on. 
so I will be looking for another one. So recommendations in the comments, go ahead. I'm always open to new book recommendations. So we've talked about film, we've talked about books and we've done streaming. That means it's time for mental health. It's been a relatively quiet week, I am very happy to say. I'm a little bit run down. I've got a bit of a cold. You might have been out of hear me sniffing. I am so sorry. I spent most of the weekend in that sort of haze between sleep and awake. In fact, Saturday, I spent most of Saturday lying on the sofa, half awake, mostly sleeping. I was incredibly tired. I was in bed at 10 o'clock and asleep by 11 actually asleep by 10.30, and then I didn't wake up until nearly nine, and it was a solid sleep. I clearly needed it, but that is always, for me, a sign that things aren't quite right in the Ray world. I don't tend to sleep that much or that heavily as a rule. In fact, I find it difficult to sleep as a rule, so when I start to get incredibly tired, incredibly fractious like a child (laughs) yeah like a child I know that it is time for me to take a step back from certain things work has been its usual self I'm writing a piece of content a day which is not something that I feel 100% comfortable with and I have been honest in telling my manager that I do feel that the quality of the work is going down, not because I'm writing any worse, but because I'm being pushed to write more. I feel a little bit anxious about the way things are going. You know how you suddenly sense that things are changing and they're not necessarily changing for the better. When I start sensing that kind of change, my anxiety levels rise just a tiny bit and I start to feel dread when I go to sleep. And it's not so much that I don't want to go to sleep. It is the fact that I have a fear that something is going to happen when I wake up. Yeah, I know that doesn't seem logical, but that is just the way that my brain works. Does anybody else feel that way? You know, have that horrid sense of anxiety or that sinking feeling that something isn't quite right in their life when they're about to go to sleep and it causes their sleep to be restless or way too heavy. I woke up with that horrid sleep hangover at least three times this week because I was so exhausted for no reason other than the fact that my body is carrying around a a brain that doesn't want to work properly. I wasn't quite sure what to talk about this week. It's really difficult when every single week is the same as the one before. That horrid sense of anxiety, that feeling of dread, that draining exhaustion and there's no reason why I should be feeling any of those things. I have a job even though it is changing far more than I personally feel emotionally comfortable with at this moment in time. I have a roof over my head, I have food in the cupboard, way more food than I probably should have and I'm saying that having stuffed my face with a a tub of Haagen-Dazs ice cream last night and ice cream is my bad food. And then there's that thing at the back of my mind that is telling me constantly to be wary, be cautious, constantly look over my shoulder. I'm not sure if it's I'm dreading a knife in the back or it's just warning me that I need to be more aware of my surroundings. I hate anxiety. I don't know anybody that likes it, apart from the people that thrive on creating it, of course. And I'm sure there are quite a few of those. But right now, this feeling of anxiety that I have is, I wouldn't say unnecessary, but it's more unnerving. Anyway, less of that, I think. If you're somebody who does feel constantly anxious or does have problems sleeping or is in that sort of in-between world of I constantly feel as though I need to be aware of everything that is happening around me because I know someone's going to come and stab me in the back or push me over. 
it sounds like very strange advice, but you need to do what I have started to do myself. Take a step back and look at things from another perspective. The chances are no one is out to get you. It is just that horrid sense of dread that we all get when we're feeling tired or we are aware that there is something not quite right in the world. In all reality, it is not in your world. It is something you've heard, a conversation you've had that is nothing bad for you. And I'm saying this from experience, someone will say something and I immediately start thinking, oh my god, that's about me, when it's not at all. That is the problem with anxiety. It's, in a way, a a rather self-centered disorder because that anxiety is oh my god this is about me oh my god that something bad is going to happen to me I'm not saying it's a (laughs) it is a bad thing anxiety is never a good thing and it's something that I understand all too well but it's so difficult to explain and really difficult to explain to somebody else so as I said my experience has taught me that I take a step back and look outside of myself. Have they said that it's about me? Is my job at risk? Is my home at risk? Is this, that and the other at risk? Am I just reading too far into things and that is my biggest problem? Once I have done that, I then give myself five minutes of meditation, five minutes of peace, doesn't have to be meditation, just five minutes of peace, light a candle, pour myself a glass of wine, have a warm shower, something, anything to just take me out of myself for a few minutes, take myself out of the situation. When you're washing your hair, you can't really think about too much because, well, I can't because I am so clumsy, I'd probably fall over and brain myself in the shower. And there's that paranoia again. But all those things, do something that you enjoy that means you can't think of anything else I'll occasionally crochet a couple of lines of a scarf or a project that I haven't worked on for a while purely just to just concentrate on something other than thoughts in my head so that's it for this week I do hope you've enjoyed the episode you found a new film to watch a book you might want to read some recommendations you want to give me Or perhaps you found the tiny bit of advice I gave about anxiety and how I personally deal with elements of it helpful. I release a new episode every week, so if you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends or family and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at Ray's Reading Room, though that will be changing to Not Before Coffee podcast soon. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely have not had enough yet. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.